The Holy Gospel, according to St. Mark from the 16th chapter, glory to you, O Lord. The Gospel this morning does indeed come from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, and you can find that on your pew Bible on 1584. Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, and it had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. And he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb they saw nothing they said said nothing to anyone because they were afraid this is the gospel of the lord praise to you o christ you may be seated Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the name of Jesus. There was a, a time that I thought that the books of the Bible were written in the order that they appear in the Bible. It, it wasn't until I was a little old, older, uh, more mature, that I figured out that each book of the Bible was written by itself. Uh, and that there are many different ways to arrange uh, each book in all of the books in the Bible. And you can go out and you can find them. There are ones that go chronologically and people mix them around all, all the time. And one of the things that surprised me um, at first, because, well, did you know this, that some of the epistles that Paul wrote were actually written before the gospel accounts were available in written form? I just never thought about that. Of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they were done way before 1 Corinthians. But they weren't. Okay. 
Get to it, Pastor. What does that mean? Well, today's epistle comes from one of the earliest writings in the New Testament. Many scholars feel that the account of the resurrection in today's reading, 1 Corinthians, may be the first written proclamation of the resurrection. Paul wrote it. Today's epistle was written to a church that had many struggles, putting it politely. The city of Corinth is in a geographically strategic spot. It is on a narrow isthmus, and it connects the two parts of Greece. And the citizens of Corinth, along with the sister city of Sancria, had worked out a way to lift the ships out of the sea and to carry them across the isthmus and place them back in the sea on the other side of the isthmus. That's fun to say. Isthmus. Go ahead, say it. Isthmus. Okay, you don't got chickens. Anyway, uh, the way that they did it, this was astounding. There's a canal there, by the way, now. But they, they actually had, uh, like, wheels and, and, and uh, uh, tracks, and they would move these ships across. This turned out to be a huge, huge savings in time and expense. And uh, Corinth soon became very, very wealthy. And along with the wealth came immorality. Kind of typical of port cities or, or trade hubs. You, you can see that, well, the sailors are supposed to do something. And what are they supposed to do while their ship is making its way across the isthmus? So Cor- Corinth became um, a center of both moral and immoral forms of entertainment for the sailors who were waiting for their ships. In fact, Corinth became a verb. So to Corinthianize came to mean to live a pagan and immoral life similar to the citizens of Corinth. Live like a Corinthian. So in spite of all this, of the amoral behavior, the Holy Spirit was at work. And he worked through the Apostle Paul to establish a Christian congregation in Corinth. And Paul spent a great deal of time in Corinth helping them with all of the struggles that a young church would have in the middle of such a corrupt, pagan, and immoral culture. The members of the congregation in Corinth also sent uh, delegations, several of them, to Paul after he left their city. They still had struggles, and they still looked to Paul to provide them with guidance from the Holy Spirit. And as a result, Paul sent at least four letters, four letters to the church in Corinth, And two of these letters have survived. And those are the letters that became 1st and 2nd Corinthians in what we call the New Testament, which is 
really just a newer Old Testament, right? Today's epistle reading comes near the end of the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. It, in the p- earlier parts of it, it has dealt with several of the dividing issues that um, the congregation was fa- facing. And in Paul's letter writing, um, my own earthly father was Pauline in the way uh, that he could write, and I'll explain that in this. Paul's letter and some of my father's letters, uh, they encouraged, they scolded, they warned, and then they guided. And now as he nears the end of the letter that we read today, and he gave out all the basics, he, one of them was, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And that is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In that, Paul is reminding them, and he's reminding you and me, that Christians, and Christians in Corinth, that the most important teaching is that Christ died for our sins and that he rose on the third day. Now today, there are many false scholars who insist that Christ's resurrection was a hoax, They insist that either the disciples or the early church fabricated a resurrection in order to jumpstart this new religion called Christianity. Sadly, there are millions of people who buy into this false scholarship, this false teaching. And Paul's words to the Corinthians not only tell us that Christ has risen, but they also challenge those who, who say he has not. You see, Paul followed his proclamation of the resurrection with a list, with a list of witnesses who saw Jesus alive after he had died on the cross. When Paul states that these people saw Jesus, he does not mean that they kind of had a glimpse out of the corner of their eye. And he's not talking about the kind of witness who says that, I saw Elvis, and he was walking with Bigfoot. These were credible witnesses, not kooks. He's talking about witnesses who had conversed, <laughs> read it, Ken. He is talking about witnesses who had conversations with Jesus. And not only just conversations, but they ate with Jesus. They touched Jesus and were touched by Jesus. He is talking about first-class, reliable credible witnesses, the kind of witness that you can put on the stand at any trial 
and they would stand up. Paul reminded the Christians in Corinth that they could talk to Cephas or any of the other 12 apostles. And there is also a group of more than 500 people who saw Jesus, who heard Jesus. It begs the question, how many witnesses do you need? People who study mythology say that you have to get far away from someone or something in order to start a myth about it. You have to be far enough away so that no one can say, hey, wait a minute. I was there, and that is not how it happened. You have to be away from a person that can say that. You also have to be far away from a person who has a family member that was there and maybe told them about it, maybe a grandma. So it could go like that. Somebody could say, hey, you know what? My grandma, she told me about that. And here is how she said it really happened. Do you get an idea how far removed you have to get in order for a myth to survive? You need a great distance in time and in space so that no one can check your facts. Getting harder to do in the age of the internet where everything is forever. And Christianity does the exact opposite of that. Here's what it does. It starts in Jerusalem where anyone can take a few hours and check out the tomb where any decent investigator can find witnesses to the people and the events. If you were going to start up a fake religion that depended on a fake miracle, you would not start in the very city where the fake miracle was supposed to happen. You do not start it up less than a generation after the miracle was supposed to happen. You just can't do that with a fake. Paul wrote this letter probably less than 50 years. It was AD 50. So you're talking 18 some odd years from the, re- from the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's not a lot of time. There's people that would remember. You can only do this with the truth. And in this case, the truth that the resurrection is real. The witnesses of the resurrection are not just credible witnesses because their accounts of the resurrection line up and make sense. They are also credible witnesses because they were willing to die rather than change their story. No sane person would die for a story. No sane person would die for a lie, let alone 12 or hundreds of martyrs that came after them. The fact that hundreds of martyrs gave up their lives, it just shows us that the resurrection is the truth. 
Okay, so what does it mean that the resurrection is truth? It means that when Jesus was on the cross, and when he said, it is finished, then it really is finished. He has taken all of our sins from us, and he's made us righteous before God. It means that every promise he ever made will come true. It means that those who believe in him for forgiveness of sins will live forever in the joy of his presence. What does it mean that the resurrection is the truth? It means that loved ones that we have buried in death will not remain that way forever. It means that when we buried them, that we experienced a different kind of grief. And we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Our grief is the grief of those who will be apart for a long time, but not forever. The resurrection means that the day will come when we will see our loved ones again. That's his promise. The resurrection means that when a believer dies, the Lord takes him out of this valley of sorrows and of pain, and he brings him to himself in heaven. It means that he leaves behind all the sin and the sorrow, all the pain and the sickness, and all that make life in this world so hard, so frustrating. It means that he now waits in the presence of the Lord, his Savior, Jesus Christ. The resurrection means that the day will come when Jesus will raise all the dead and he will give eternal life to all believers in Christ. It means the day will come when there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. It means that all those who wait with the Lord in heaven and all those who are still alive on earth will be changed. We shall all live in our bodies, but these bodies will be immortal. They will be heavenly. They will be perfect bodies. They shall be our bodies, but all of the corruption of sin will be gone from them. The Apostle Paul describes it this way, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but in verses 51 through 57, he says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, 
and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For we know the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But, thanks be to God, who has given us the victory through Jesus Christ. Amen. In the name of Jesus. Amen.